This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, novelists, poets, and scholars about the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories and reportage. A portrait of grief and trauma set in a North Florida coastal community is at the center of a debut novel by Elias Rodriguez. All the Water I See is Running is a structurally creative, deeply nuanced journey of self-discovery with diverse characters that cut across racial and social lines. I'll be back in a moment with author Elias Rodriguez. My guest today is Elias Rodriguez. His debut novel, All the Water I See is Running, was just published. Rodriguez's work has been published in The Nation, Book Forum, and N Plus One Journal. He lives in Philadelphia and is an assistant professor of African American literature at Sarah Lawrence College. Elias, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really great to be here, and I'm really grateful for you making the time today. I'm so excited to talk about this novel, and one of the things that you do so beautifully is situate the reader in a particular geography in the opening pages. And in fact, there's a quote before the first chapter, and it says, geography is not fate, but fatal. It comes from a beautiful poem, The Mariner's Progress, by a Jamaican poet, Ishian Hutchinson, and and then I realized the significance of that that piece of the poem after I read this. Now, the sense of place is so vivid and central in this novel, and you've set the story principally in a rural community in intercoastal North Florida, where a, quote, river runs alongside the ocean. And then there's also that connection to Jamaica in this story. Can you give us a little sense of why you set the novel in this place, and what is your connection to this area? Yeah. So I grew up in that area or, you know, I spent my formative years like 12 to 18 there. Um, and so that place is really important to me um, as a region. I think it's also really strange and misunderstood or for that matter, not thought of at all often. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think often when people talk about Florida, they mostly think of Miami and occasionally Disney World, you know, or maybe <laughs> Tampa. Um, I think additionally, when people think about the South, they don't often really think about Florida, and they really don't often think about North Florida, because to me, North Florida felt a lot more like South Georgia, um, albeit a more coastal place. And, and the place is fundamentally actually quite interesting. You know, I mean, it's a suburb of a suburb, mm. you know, and so in 30 minutes, you could drive from a sort of beach town area through a suburb, pass a golf course, and then, you know, be on a dirt road where people are farming. And that place... I think offers us something of a bellwether for America more generally, partially just because all of the kinds of America are all really close together. I mean, this is a kind of strange example, but I remember in 2008 when I saw that Flagler County, the county that the book is set in, had flipped for Obama, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, 
no wonder he won, you know, uh, the presidential campaign. If he could flip Flagler County, he could flip Mm. anywhere, you know, and I think that there is a way that that place tells us a lot about the U.S. You're quite right. It does feel rather Southern. It doesn't feel like the typical Florida that, that comes to mind. And when we move through the story, the main character, Daniel Enriquez, we learn that he is gay. He is a teacher in New York, and he returns to Florida because a high school friend, Aubrey, uh, whom he really loved, has just died tragically. What I love about the main character, Daniel, is that we really feel his complexity. He's he's kind of one person in New York and another person when he uh, returns to Florida. Uh, for example, his speech shifts. Um, and there's this beautiful kind of colloquial style and patois that probably he picked up in part from his uh, Jamaican mother. But the, the land and the language are so beautifully entwined. When you're writing, how does place come to you? How does it shape individuals? And tell us something about how it comes through in this novel. Absolutely. I mean, to me, I think often, you know, the story of much of modern history, and I think also much of literature is people acting on place or people transforming places, be it, you know, clearing a lot to build a home or building a breaker to have a beach or what have you. But to me, actually, place tends to act on people, you know, where mm. you are shapes you in a way that I think is really, really undervalued and under and less understood than it should be. I think additionally, this really comes through to me in the form of language, you know, people who move a lot, tend to become fluent in many different accents, dialects, and the way that they speak can become a way of becoming a part of a community, a part of fitting in, of situating oneself. You know, I mean, I I myself might sound different when talking to like, you know, the, cousin of, the cousins of mine who grew up in New York than the people I grew up with in North Florida, and even still different than I am when I'm talking to, you know, my mother, who is a Jamaican or other Jamaican family members. And that for us, as a way of relating to each other, being with each other, and of being together. I think also, one last thing on language and place is, you know, there's this old linguist joke that goes, you know, what's the difference between a language and a dialect? A language has an army. And to me, I think, well, on the one hand, I find this a little funny, but it's very much a dad joke. On the other hand, I think, I'm actually really interested in the dialects that don't have armies and thinking of the hmm. ways that we speak that aren't exactly the same as we're taught in school, but are actually maybe more accurate and also more fluid ways of being in the world. You know, I mean, I think there's a a freedom there in speaking without an army, let's say. Speaking without an army. Do you mean a kind of freedom to speak uh, with a small group of people that kind of a, a shared experience? Yeah, absolutely. I think what I mean is that, you know, there's a sort of national way of speaking, let's say, and that's the English that you're taught as, you know, the spellings are defined in the dictionary yeah. and the grammar that is defined for everything from a grammar textbook to, you know, the New York Times style guide, what have you. But then there are all these other ways of talking that are much more local and also often transcend borders, right? So the Jamaican patois that, you know, you hear in Kingston is not actually that different from the one that you might hear in parts of Brooklyn. And then when you hear someone speaking with a patois that you don't exactly understand, you're like, wait, is this guy from the country? I've I've never heard this accent from before, you know? Like, how did a man from, like, the Blue Mountains in Jamaica make his way to New York City or to North Florida, you know? And that's, I think that's what I'm sort of getting at. All of those much more local but also because they're local and smaller, fluid and able to sort of 
pass through spaces in ways that official languages cannot. This brings to mind a question. When Daniel is in New York and then moves moves to Florida, or I should say visits Florida, that transition is so seamless. And the way that the book is written, there are, for example, no quotation marks around conversation. Yet I know exactly when someone is speaking and when there's sort of descriptive language. Was that something, is that a style that you write in or was that a kind of editorial collaboration? Because it really allowed me to sink into the story. Um, And I don't see that style so often in the finished printed page. Yeah, that was that was my doing, and I, I must say it, it kept me up at night a lot because I, you know, mm. I had zero novels to my name. I was a no one, you know, and I was like, oh, is any agent, is any publisher going to pick up this book without quotation marks? You know, a fairly basic uh, thing for for the published word, and so it was something that I felt quite nervous about. But on the other hand, I think. You're right. It lets you sort of really get into the narrator's head, into Daniel's head. You know, you're sort of because when we when we're walking around the world, I don't see quotation marks before anyone speaks, you know, and and in some ways, I think actually the language that I hear sounds not that different in volume than the language that is in my head when I'm thinking in a sentence or what have you, you know, and I think that that Mm -hmm. to me was a big part of choosing to write without quotation marks as well as it enables us to see the ways in which the language of the people around him are shaping how he thinks. You know, when Daniel is with his, you know, North Florida friends, the parts where he's narrating, even though you know that no one's speaking, you can kind of see the ways that his friend's language is bleeding into the actual way that he is thinking, into the dialogue and dialect of his interior monologue of his thoughts. Exactly. And one of those friendships that is um, central to the novel is the friendship between Daniel and the character Aubrey. And this friendship feels extraordinary to me. Honestly, it's hard to imagine how they really could develop such an intimate friendship because Daniel is uh, a young black man with a bright future, probably about to get a track scholarship. And Aubrey is uh, white. She self-identifies as a redneck. She uses explicitly racist language. What can you tell us about creating this this really unlikely pairing that propels the novel both in the present and in memory? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I hate to reduce this to place, you know, but I do think that there is something to be said here about the region. You know, I mean, I think on the one hand in high school, not unlike the workplace, you don't actually exactly choose who's in your world. You know, you don't choose who's in your class. You don't choose who's in the hallways at the same times that you're in the hallways. And so Mm -hmm. the people that you meet, I think, tend to be a much greater mixture of your community than you might otherwise choose. And there's something to be said about the way that this region, and I think much of the South, puts together people of many different viewpoints and many different races and genders and et cetera. You know, I mean, ultimately, it's still kind of a descendant of, you know, the old South of, let's say, like Richard Wright, you know, where there is a deep proximity between people who are black and people who are white and don't like black people or who are racist towards black people. But I think it's also importantly, you know, it's after Loving versus Virginia, the legalization of interracial marriage. It's after the Civil Rights Act. And so people do have different ways of relating to each other and have to find new ways of relating to each other in a place that 
has changed in some ways, but also hasn't in other ways. And so for Daniel, this can be really important because, of course, he cares about Aubrey. He comes to really like Aubrey. There's, you know, she's someone who at first to him is funny, who he eventually finds that he has a lot in common with. And then he tries to flee this area. But ultimately, even if you leave the place, you can't really escape your history, not in the long run. There's an amazing scene, again, by the river, um, where they kind of sit quietly. It's a place of almost like a place of refuge and a bit of a trap because, as you mentioned, they're desperate to get out of this town. But they they sit together, they're honest with each other, and they're also comfortable sitting in silence. And there were moments when the silence would kind of linger in a scene. And I wondered if you could talk about how you do that. What is your technique for, for writing that way? And what do you want to convey to the reader when silence is present in a, in a scene? You know... Writing silence is quite hard, you know, because you're writing about kind of nothing in a way. You're writing about an absence of speech. And it, it can be really difficult, I think, or it was for me. I think also as a person and as a person who grew up in North Florida, you know, men, people and especially boys were always talking, you know, if we were together. We were, you know, trying to make each other joke. We were often lying. You know, people lied a ton in the area about whatever, how fast they were on the track, how good they were at football. And I think. I often remember after coming back from the beach in someone's car when we would be more or less just exhausted, you know, because we were kids who like didn't have like full-time jobs, so we didn't have a ton of money. So we would just get out to the beach early, maybe surf, maybe skimboard, body surf, swim, and just sort of stay there the whole day during the summers and really take a kind of a beating from both the sun and the ocean, you right. know, and, and then we would get in someone's car and you know, maybe we turn music on or maybe not, but ultimately we were just too tired at the end of the day to talk. But we were able kind of for the first time to be comfortable not talking, you know, to just sort of not feel a pressure to make each other laugh or to impress each other and to just be with each other. I think that mm. that's part of what is really important to me about that moment of silence for Daniel and Aubrey. Sometimes talking can be really important for them but sometimes talking can be a way of escaping their discomfort with being in their own skin, with being with someone else in their own body. And ultimately, that silence is really a way for them of just accepting that they want to be with this other person at this time. And it doesn't really matter how funny they are. They've just decided mm. they want mm. to spend some time together. My guest today is Elias Rodriguez. His new novel, all the Water I See is Running was just published. And one of the things that runs through this novel is a kind of pathology of abuse. And one of the most uh, moving sentences in the novel is this, I don't know the border between love and fear. Perhaps I still don't. And I thought about that line a lot as I was reading the novel as you were writing this, was it more difficult for the, uh, for the character Daniel to navigate his uh, sexuality or the abuse that he experienced from his father and brother? And I might also note that we learned that Daniel didn't realize his orientation in high school. And then secondly, when he returned to Florida, which was really about a kind of a journey of discovery, 
he learned more about the abuse that took place in his family. So what can you tell us about navigating um, sexuality versus abuse as you wrote Daniel? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the one the one rule I had for myself while writing was just be honest, to not shy away from things that might feel shameful to Daniel or things that might feel difficult to Daniel, but to just be honest, you know. I don't know that one is necessarily more difficult than the other, but I do think, you know, abuse is a big part of why he wants to not hang out at home and spend all his time with his friends, why he wants to like leave Florida. And it's also a big part of his commitment to his friends and to his romantic partners. Um, I think it's a big part of why he feels close to Aubrey, as we've mentioned. And I think it's also a big part of why he's so deeply concerned for her and everyone else's well-being. You know, I remember hearing recently, I don't actually know if this is true, but someone said this and it sounded very true to me, you know, that people who survive trauma have many different life experiences after that trauma, but one pretty common commonality is that they all want no one else to experience the kind of trauma that they've experienced. And I think that Hmm. that's a big part of the Daniel's commitment to the physical safety and well-being of his friends. But I think also that that violence means that, you know, Daniel could never be too precious about sexual relationships, you know, romantic relationships. He knows actually that closeness is dangerous, right? I mean, I think he knows that to be really close to someone means that invariably you will hurt them in some way or another, you know, I mean, ideally not physically, absolutely not physically. I'm, I'm not valorizing child abuse or intimate partner violence, but the truth is that as people, we hurt people. The question is, where do we go from hurting someone? You know, how do you maintain a relationship? How do you continue to build safety with that person or to make a world in which, you know, the kind of hurt that you did to them on Monday can't exist on Friday. Mm. And that's a big part of, I think Daniel's commitment to his friends and to the world, it's actually taking seriously and knowing that people hurt each other and still trying to work through that hurt towards a kind of harmony with them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a sense of loyalty that that one feels to a friend or a family member who is a protector at a vulnerable time. And when I think about what you just said, I'm thinking now about the back to the friendships in the story. Daniel is on the track team. He's an excellent long distance runner, and he has a diverse set of friends on this track team. And there's a particularly difficult scene in which a fight is about to sort of break out. They all protect him. The friends protect Daniel. They don't want him to lose a scholarship and his path out of this community. What can you share about how how this protectiveness plays out in the novel. Because for me, it felt like Daniel was experiencing a kind of survival's guilt. I think survivor's guilt is a good read. You know, I mean, that scene is in some ways moving and sad to me. I mean, I think it's really important to me to know and to have people in your life that you would risk things for to protect. You know, I think that it's important to know who those people are. I think that that is often actually a sign of a healthy social life, that there are people where, you know, you have to think to yourself, okay, well, if something were to happen, I I would take on risk. I would take on their risk to try to keep them safe. That means a lot to me, you know, to not be so self-invested that it's my life over anyone else's at any given time. I think it's also really sad. I mean, I think that the valuation of that scholarship 
means that there are so many people around him who are willing to take on risk, maybe for not great reasons in some ways. You know, I mean, their lives are also valuable, even if they don't have the fancy scholarship. And I think much of Daniel's return is about realizing that point in particular and knowing that these people are meaningful to me, regardless of how much, you know, some wealthy benefactor or school financial aid office will pay them to go to their school. You know, their lives are meaningful and they're also worth protecting. And I think perhaps, you know, among the healthiest social lives are having those relationships where one is willing to risk and take on vulnerability for someone else be reciprocal. You know, you want other people in your corner who you would give, you know, your life for and who would give their lives for you in a way. I mean, I don't mean to be that dramatic, you know, but certainly I think for Daniel and for all of his friends, friendship, closeness, intimacy, the crucible in which those things are forged is risk and its vulnerability and its violence. Thinking about this one, you know, when we get to the end of the story, I, f- I felt that, well, for example, in the penultimate chapter, I thought, wow, okay, Daniel has had his discovery. He has made some peace with people and things, not in a totally tidy box, but he's made some peace. And then we get to a final perspective, which I absolutely did not see coming. And we're going to walk carefully through this, but Daniel has a perspective about what is meaningful and what he values. But there is still the other side of this where his friends may have a different vision of him than he may be willing to see or accept. At least that was one of my interpretations. And I wonder what you want to tell us about that today, because not only structurally is this incredibly original, what did you want to say about how a a friend in your life who was so significant might view you, even if you maybe don't quite want to accept it? Yeah, that's a good good question. Okay, let's tiptoe carefully to not uh, reveal anything. There is a difference in perspective at one point in the book. Someone else narrates the book. And I think, you know, it's really funny. I mean, just anecdotally or biographically, you know, at one point I'd had that change in perspective much more common and throughout the book. And then I was like, this isn't making any sense. I can't tell what's happening. There are no quotation marks. I don't know, you know, who knows what. And I was like, okay, so at a sort of more formal and basic level, I was like, we have to really get in on this one person's perspective and be serious about what they know and don't know and make that consistent. But the more I got into Daniel's head, the more as a person I was thinking, you know, as a person who's reading a story that I'm writing, I was thinking about how particular Daniel's view is, even as he's so important, or even as he's so invested in his friends. I wanted to think more about what it means to actually be comfortable with knowing that our friends, our family, people whom we're close to have different views of us, have different understandings, know things that we couldn't possibly know and Mm -hmm. being okay with that lack of knowledge. Because I think often as a young person, what I wanted from intimacy was something like somebody who knew exactly the things that I knew and shared exactly my points of view. You know, I thought the ideal form of connection was we were always on the same page And as an adult, I think I have come to think that intimacy is maybe being comfortable with those differences, as well as with knowing that there are some bridges that one can't cross. There are some things that I can't know. There are questions I couldn't even begin to ask. 
because I don't have enough information or have the ways of thinking to know to ask those questions. Wow. And I think that ultimately novels are a really great place for this because we can get into the head of someone else, understand what they know, and as a reader also have our own perspective. And I think that structurally, you want to really play with that. Yeah, I'm really trying not to say too much. Um, You you want to play with that. Yeah, that's what I'll say. My guest today has been Elias Rodriguez. His new novel is All the Water I See is Running, just published by Norton. So Elias, thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. This has been uh, really a thrill to talk to you about this beautiful book. And um, I'm excited to see uh, what comes next from you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. Real Fiction airs Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com. Thanks for listening.